Welcome to the Santa Cruz Coffee Break. If you're watching on YouTube or listening on Apple Podcasts, please follow, hit the like button, or any subscribes. It really helps us with the algorithms. Santa Cruz Coffee Break is produced by the Santa Cruz Guitar Players Forum. All opinions are those of the speakers. We invite you to join us on the Santa Cruz Guitar Players Forum at SCGCPF for more fun. Now, let's get on with this installment of Santa Cruz Coffee Break. Welcome, folks. We'd like to welcome you to number the podcast number 38. And as we have done in the past, we're going to take a completely different kind of U-turn. Today, we're talking with author John Stubbings, who wrote The Devil Is In It. And just a little personal aside, when John first uh, signed up for, participated in the forum, I thought his moniker, The Devil Was In It, was... <laughs> some kind of kid playing a joke <laughs> and, and I didn't want him anywhere near the place. <laughs> and, then, and then through one of our, uh, um, one of our members, um, I found out really what the real truth was. So John, uh, John and John is joining us from London, from his uh, flat in London. And we uh, would like to welcome you in, John. Thank you very much. It's a privilege to be here. It's well, I know we are obviously it's, it's morning time in, uh, in California, but it's four o'clock in the afternoon here. And as I explained, the builders in the building have finally stopped hammering the, on the walls, so we might get a bit of peace and quiet. I, I expect the neighbors to bring their gardener here shortly, so we'll have probably <laughs> the air blowers and, and all of that going Perfect. Morning, Tad. How are you up there? I'm good. I'm good. This is exciting. It's um, going to be a lot of fun. This, I this is our first international Zoom, I believe. Wrong. Choosing. Wrong? Choosy. Oh, that's right. Okay. Which, well, I saw the choosy one. That was good. It was it was hysterical. And if you get to know him at all, he is actually quite a picker. He uh he placed very high in Winfield. You know, and that's uh that's a feat. Mm. You know, that's that's really something else. So let's get people to getting getting to know you. Give us a little background, give us a little of your history and stuff like that, because it's a uh, it's different than ours. Yeah, okay. Um, so uh, I'm from London. Um, I in terms of musically, I suppose, I started playing guitar when I was probably about 14 uh, in school, in high school. Um, there were, were a small group of us. Uh, so this is in the, in the uh, 70s. Late late sixties, uh, early early seventies. There are a small group of us guys who were just obsessed with music, and uh, and, and mainly that meant uh, LPs, records, and um, and music magazines. There were three music newspapers in mm. Britain. New Musical Express was the pretty uh, intense one, I suppose. Pretty. It was a news weekly musical rock and roll music uh, newspaper uh, with pretensions to write at the quality of Rolling Stone. Uh, there was a magazine called Sounds, which was very uh, into progressive music. Um, so bands that played in time signatures like 1517 um, <laughs> and everything was in the key of F13 with a diminished ninth and with intolerably difficult words. Cat's foot, iron claw, neurosurgeons scream for more. 
at Paranoia's <laughs> Garden Door, 21st century schizoid man. There you um, are. That was, uh, that's King Crimson. Um, and, uh, and then there was a, and then there were the sort of pop newspapers. So we used to spend all our money on records and, uh, and music newspapers and swapping them. And um, it, it was when you walked around with a 12 inch LP under your arm, it was all about, it, it's, it, it told a story about you. Um, so you had to have the right album under the arm, under your arm. So a lot of us were walking around with uh, Captain Beefheart albums under our arm, not, not a, in any way understanding what the music was about, um, but it said a lot about us. Anyway, and then there, were, there was a small breakout group and we played guitar and or started to play guitar. And I suppose my early influences were English folk music. Um, but then the sort of first important record, influential record that, that came my way was, uh, was the Woodstock triple album. Mm -hmm. And I was probably the first person in Britain to have a copy. Wow. My, my brother was living in Canada and he was a hairdresser and he did um, Rita Coolidge's hair. And Rita Coolidge's boyfriend at the time was Chris Christopherson. And Chris used to go into my brother's shop and salon and talk to my brother. And one day he brought in the Woodstock album, which he'd just been given by, the, uh, by a, a friend in the industry. So it was a pretty early pressing. And my brother came back home for good from Canada two days later and he brought the album with him and he gave, me, gave it to me as a present. And in Britain, we didn't even know what Woodstock was. And I was pretty tuned into music. There was, there had been, a, well, there was rather about uh, a little while later, so a little while after Woodstock happened in 68, the, there were newspaper articles, but they were all about the traffic jams um, on, on the freeway. There were nothing about who played. Mm. So I got this, this album and obviously there, you know, there was Hendrix on it and 10 years after and stuff like that. But the, the, the musicians I was most influenced by and just played on repeat were Joan Byers, Richie Havens, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, Country Joe, um, John B. Sebastian. So I was drawn towards the acoustic side of, of Woodstock. Um, and that sort of set me on a path of adoring the music of singer songwriters. So, did, pardon, pardon, did you, no. were you, were you exposed to Sing Out in any of those, any of those magazines that were coming out of the U.S.? Yeah, that's interesting. No, they, they really never, they weren't on my radar. I, I know what Sing Out is, but um, no, I, I just, uh, it, it was, it's very interesting because one of the questions that, from the, from the book that I've been in, asked is, why is it called, because it's called The Devil Is In It, which is a, a, a quote which describes um, uh, a female guitar player, Dagoni, who, I uh, can't remember the poet now, actually, who saw her and said that she played, she looks fantastic, she plays beautifully, she plays music, and I swear that the devil is in it. 
uh, such was uh, her artistry. And um, but it's the sub the subtitle of the book is a story of love, obsession, and the American acoustic guitar. And when I went to publishers in the UK fairly on, early on, they said, hmm, why is it called the American acoustic guitar? We'd, you'd sell a lot more if it was just called and the acoustic guitar. And I said, well, the, the, the thing you've got to, it, it's the American acoustic guitar because the acoustic guitar that I'm describing in the book is an American invention. The, the still strung flat top acoustic guitar, sure it looks like the European classical guitar, a Spanish guitar, if you will, but the still string flat top was invented in America, albeit enabled by a German emigre, C.F. Martin, but it's an American invention. And it's a very different instrument from the European classical guitar. They look so similar, but they are so different. And obviously the electric guitar is an American invention, not invented by Les Paul. Um, and he was an enabler along the way. He was very late in the invention of the actual electric guitar. And obviously the archtop jazz guitar is an American invention. So that's why it's called the American acoustic guitar. It's, it's, you know, it's related to the European instrument, but it's, it's an American invention. And interestingly, one of the people who bought my book um, said, it, it's weird that I've learned so much about the, the history of American music and the American guitar from your book. It takes a sort of like a, a stranger to, or an Englishman maybe, to, to give a different view on, and, it's, and I think an, there's an awful lot of people um, in the world and, and also in America who don't realize that this is an American invention. Um, you know, with, without what happened in New York in the sort of 1830s and 40s and 50s, we wouldn't have this, this guitar. And, and, you know, there's the banjo and the mandolin and the ukulele are really, you know, very important instruments. But had it, had it not been for Martin and X Bracing, we could all be playing either banjos or ukes, and they could be the defining instrument. Had it not been for C.F. Martin, one could argue, um, we wouldn't have the steel string flat top guitar. So that's sort of, I don't know how I got down this rabbit hole. You said we'd go down rabbit <laughs> yeah, hole. <laughs> anyway, so yeah. So, so I, I started playing effectively singer-songwriter music. And of course I realized well, actually, I realized a bit too late that, that girls really like guys who, who seem to have a feminine side or a soul who can play acoustic, acoustic music. If only I'd known that at 14 and 15, my life would have been very different. I just sort of liked playing guitar. I didn't realize that those girls who used to sit in the, the cafeteria at lunchtime when we used to play guitar sort of were getting all hot and bothered about it but um but anyway that so that was my that was my sort of beginnings was was singer songwriters and obviously I got very passionate about the the, the very different British English singer songwriter scene with people like John Martin and Roy Harper and Nick Drake um who were playing a very different kind of of music and obviously Bert Yanch and John Renborn etc so my sort of musical taste has always been influenced by 
you know, James Taylor and Joni and Neil Young and Crosby, Sewers, Nash and Young on the on the American side and and the the, the, the huge number of, of uh, folk singers, folk guitarists uh, from the 60s and 70s in Britain. So that's my sort of background. I, first, I have to say kudos for the Captain Beefheart reference. I've been meaning to uh, but secondly, you know, what you're describing is a kind of a feedback loop that seemed to have been established between England and the United States, not just in the development of the instruments, but also in the development of the music. Um, mm. And uh, I think it's, it's, that's an area that's really intriguing to me. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, it sounded sort of like when you were describing the, the, your big cuts on the Woodstock album, you probably would have been one of the morning music guys. You would have uh, probably mm. preferred the mornings there. Yeah, oh, absolutely. There was no way I would have, well, perhaps I would have been up at uh, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night listening to uh, Hendrix and Shanana and whatever. I liked, I liked all that stuff. I liked the whole album and I played it to death. Um, and, you know, my, my uh, friends who, who played guitar, and there weren't many of us, used to come around to my house and we'd sit there and we'd listen to all six sides, you know, with sometimes without talking. Yeah, all the way through, six sides of Woodstock, because to talk was showing enormous disrespect. But again, that was in a time when I was growing up. I remember going to buy Harvest, Neil Young's Harvest, and going to the record shop. It was, came in on a Monday. Uh, U.S. releases tended to happen on Mondays. These weren't imports. These were pressed in Europe. But, and they came considerably, sometimes a couple of weeks, sometimes a few months later than when they were released in America. But I remember going home and you would put the album on. You'd listen in silence to the whole of side one. You'd turn it over, listen in silence to the whole of side two, and you'd do it all over. I mean, I, I knew the lyrics to all the albums off of, uh, sorry, all the tracks off of Blue by, by Joni Mitchell within about two days of buying that album. Mm. But you don't do that now. No one sits in there. I mean, we mainly did it on Sundays because there was nothing to do on a Sunday. All the shops were shut. And, and you certainly want to spend any time with your parents. I used to go up to my room and, and listen to LPs and you'd listen to six LPs back to back. But now, because we don't know, we listen to songs. One tune off of albums. Yeah, I think that that's, a, that's really a lost situation. I, I like to drive, I like to drive long distance and there's nothing better than four or five, not albums, but CDs. And the silence of just listening to them. And I, I, I know that, and I'm, I'm a little, little older than you and, and, but I remember that whole time. I mean, I, I, I know that whole thing. And we did, when artists create things, they create, when artist creates an album, he sequences that or she sequences that very specifically so yeah. that you have a feeling as you go through it. And if you pull one song out, you're cheating yourself. Yeah. If and you very like often it. the producer's job was to work with the artist to say, we need another tune to open side B because the other the tunes we've we've got we've got side a worked out beautifully and of course you're looking at you know all the technical stuff as well which is well you know um the dynamics so you don't want to have anything that's too loud on the uh on the inner part of the record because 
the way that we're going to have to master this, and you know about cutting the master and the pressing, um, that, that, that is, is, it's not just a technical thing, it's a musical choice, a musical decision. And then you turn over and you know that you've got these other three or four songs that have been worked out. But then we need an opening track and we haven't got that song yet. And you, you need to sit down. Less so with, let's say, Joni, who obviously produced all our own albums, um, but with, with the help of her engineer. Um, but, but for a lot of artists, you know, they, they, they were sort of told, go off, don't come back until you've got a, an opening for site two. And these, this is what it's got to, you know, this is the role it's got to do. Anyway, we sound like a, a collection of, uh, let's bring back the vinyl. But Yeah, I was going to say, I'll throw in my little old guy rant here about how I think um, people take for granted the quality and availability of music these days. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't have to go back that far. I mean, I remember when I was eight, 10 years old, the only access I had to music was my grandmother's Victrola. And, uh, you know, you had to crank it up and put a fresh mm. cactus spine into the arm and, and uh, throw a copy of Alexander's Ragtime Band on or whatever. And later on, you know, you would get a stereo. And, and I remember getting Harvest and I remember getting Joni. And you would listen. It was an experience. I mean, to be able to, to be in a room where you could hear quality stereo. I mean, mm. it was amazing. Now people are... Oh, you know, I got my phone with me. I can listen to anything I want. Yeah. And I don't even really have to listen because who cares? Yeah. I mean, uh, we've got, as you say, on our phones, we have access to virtually, virtually every piece of music that's ever been produced from, you know, uh, an old uh, ragtime rag uh, played by... Um, you know, someone in, in 1912 um, through to a record that got a, a track that got released yesterday by David Rawlings and everything's available. And there's a, there's a, that's wonderful, but almost in a way there's sort of too, too much. Well, you can never have too much choice, but, but maybe a, a little too much availability. Um, but again, we do, we do sound like um, old culture. Now I know you've, you've probably, haven't read every word of the book, but talking about this, this blend between, you know, chicken and egg, what influences stuff? So do you know where the three minute, what, why singles are three minutes long, roughly? Other all than, of course, Procol Harum. All they could fit. Yeah. It was mechanical. Yeah, it was mechanical. It was you're you're close to it with mechanical. It's not, to, it's, it's partially to do with what could fit. Goes back to, Maybell Carter. So all of those mm. early recordings, the Bristol sessions, the um, Ralph Sphere, um, re- re- they were recorded on a clockwork-driven cutting lathe, record cut cutter, not electric, because the electric power in Bristol back in the twenties was unreliable. So when they took the recording lathe down to Bristol, they, the, the lathe, the cutting disc sits here, sort of, I'm, I'm sort of five foot eight, so at about, at about sort of five foot six. And there was a pulley with a, a governor and a gravity feed weight. And when they 
switched it on, what they did is they released the gravity feed weight and the weight went down, spinning the lathe. And you know how long it took to get to the bottom? Three minutes. Yeah. Interesting. And that's why Spear says, right, give me what you've got, but if you, it's three and a half minutes. But if you go over three minutes, we ain't going to get the end of the record. And that that's so what influence was he was saying, I only want people, I only want to record people who can definitely hit a time band. I can't recall people who will screw it. So you've got to get it right pretty much in the first or the second go. Otherwise, you're out of here. So that so all the amateurs in line waiting to be recorded, they get kicked out. And it's the guys and girls and bands like the Carter family who've got enough songs could actually say, we've got this song. It's got three and a half. It's got four verses and two choruses. Well, you've got to kick out one of those verses because I'm only recording three minutes. And so it's all it's electromechanical. As you say, it's what could be cut. But also it's that the time it took for that weight to get down. And that shaped for the next 150 years that the rough length of a single so and that was the sort of thing I was interested in with and when I started writing the book one of the things the questions I was asking myself and it goes I know we're going to come to this was why are there so many different guitar shapes and sizes there must be a reason for that and was it like I mean there's a simple answer which is it's about louder so you you know you back in 1900 as we all know this was a big guitar. It's a parlor. You couldn't get, you know, other than by special request, you couldn't get a guitar a lot bigger than this. And this is, you know, this, this happens to be made by um, Santa Cruz. So it's as, it's as loud as hell. Um, but because it's brilliantly made, everything in it is working to sweat the top, make sure the sound bounces off of the Brazilian warner inside and the bridge is in the perfect place. All that stuff that Richard and his team built on, obviously standing on the shoulders of the Martin Company, as he uh, generously and, and would only ever admit, um, but just getting a bit better. But but then, so why was there a double O and a triple O and an OM and a dreadnought and a jumbo? Well, one of the answers, as we know, is is the search for louder, louder, so that I can be heard above the violin and the banjo but also louder so that if I, as a solo player, I can play bigger spaces, bigger spaces, more seats, more seats, more take on the door. It's, as, it's sort of as simple as that. It is actually obviously a lot more complex than that, but at one level, it's as simple as that. And that's what sort of slightly fascinated me and, and drove me to sort of start researching and, and, and writing the book, so. It's kind of interesting. Because, I mean, it's not kind of interesting. It's, it, it's extremely interesting because on the electric side of things, the British brought us electric music by what they dug out of the original blues guys. Hmm. I mean, they really brought us electric music. Yeah. And yet we kind of have brought over, from what I'm getting from you, we kind of developed the acoustic guitar here because you know, all those people that were influences to you, most of those people started in the sixties. 
you know, the early 60s. Like Crosby was in was in Greenwich Village in the early 60s. You know, mm. all these people were there in that. 60s. Yeah. And their the folk music just it, it was just, you know, learn a song, learn a song, learn a song, learn a song. And it, it just kind of came out of that. And I, I, yeah, I, I agree with the, the girl thing, too. You know, you you you, uh, you probably met more women. Being, and a, I wish being a soulful guy, you know. <laughs> I um I used to I did a, a lot of work. Um, so my 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 job, my career, as such as it is, was in advertising and marketing, and brands. And uh, we we were hired. We were London based, and we were hired by the Harley Davidson company to help them with the the genuine global expansion of the brand. Uh, obviously a brand incredibly successful in in the US sort of a birthright um, but the, the future for the company was we want the brand to be as powerful and to mean as much in other countries and uh, to do that you've got to define you know what's the brand about and what part of the Harley Davidson brand do you take when you're trying to sell motorcycles in China or motorcycles in in India in the developing in countries and the, the straight, you know, American flag and yeah, just ride. It's great, but it might not, it, it might not play as the perfect way to sell Harley in uh, around the world. And there would be people to say, well, I don't give a flying this because I only want it to really work in America, but for the brand to be successful, it had to do that. So um, we, we did a lot of work in Milwaukee. And I spent a lot of time with Willie G, Willie G Davidson, who's the grandson of the founder of the company. And I remember Willie saying, and I won't use the word because we'll get blocked on, on YouTube, um, but I'll let you guess that it's a, it's, a, uh, it's a particular sort of word. He said, the reason why most guys um, ride bikes, it means they're gonna get laid. And I said, Willie, I'm gonna take you to task on that. I tell you what, there's one thing that actually gets you laid quicker and gets you better looking women than a Harley or a motorcycle, and it's an acoustic guitar, um, uh, which he, he, he did actually, he, he, he bought it, and, and it was true. I just didn't, the thing is, I was a bit immature. I just didn't know. I didn't realize that, you know, what, what, it, what it was doing. Um, but that's a, that's a, a whole, nother, whole nother story, as they say. <laughs> when you talk about and it seems like we kind of you've kind of you've kind of said this already but what was the real aha moment that you had when you went oh i'm gonna write a book about this um so the aha moment for writing a book i'd so in 2015, early 2015, um, I got an email from a guy, a guitar maker, English guitar maker called uh, Dave King. And he's a really good repair guy. He's the, I think he's at the time he was the official repair guy for Martin. So if you had a warranty issue with a Martin guitar in the UK, they'd be sent to Dave King to fix. And he fixed 
guitars for Sting and Clapton and whatever. And in fact, I took my triple O 45 custom made, not a before the custom shop, not a vintage guitar, but a, a, a 19, it was a repro of a 1929. In fact, it's the, it's the 1929, he leans forward, triple uh, O 45, 1920 that's in, um, in fact, there it is. In, uh, in Groon and uh, Water Carter's book, uh, Acoustic Guitars and Other Fretted Instruments. And I fell in love with that guitar. And I thought I'm gonna buy one of those. And I went to a few dealers and they told me roughly how much it would cost to buy a vintage Triple O 45. And I decided I'd rather own a house than, than have a triple 45. Um, and I'm gonna come back and talk a little bit about Martin and American guitars, these mythical things in the UK, because you know them really well. And, you know, you could be a 16 year old kid and you might have a, a sort of, you could afford to buy a basic Martin or, a, or if you were lucky or, or a basic Gibson, uh, you couldn't in the UK, but anyway. So he, uh, he did some adjustments on my Triple O 45. Um, and in the corner of his workshop, there were this beautiful parlor guitar. No, nothing on it, no, um, uh, no headstock design, no, no inlay on the, uh, on the fretboard, very, very plain, almost monochrome. And while he was packaging up my Triple O 45, I said, well, do you mind if I play it? He said, yeah, sure. He said, be careful though. It's not, it's not mine. So I played absolutely beautiful, real piano. And uh, I said, great. I said, who, who's, whose guitar is it? He said, oh, it's one of the guitars I make. He said, I've made three of these for a, a, a client of mine. So um, I commissioned, asked him to make a guitar for me. And he said, well, okay, it'll be about six months. I'll call you in and we'll select the wood. And then about six months later, you can have it. It should be ready. Maybe a maybe a month or two after that. Fine, that's great. So uh, that was about two thousand and eight. So fast forward to twenty fifteen, and I got an email from Dave King saying your guitar is just about ready. So um, I, I can't actually add up the years. That's about seven years. So I've been waiting seven years for this guitar to get finished. And if you talk to lots of people. Uh, who've ordered custom-made guitars from single luthiers, guys who are you know, working on their own, perhaps with an apprentice. Most of them are very efficient. Some of them are a little bit skittish, and it may take a couple of years to get one. And, and there are some well-known slow builders around, um, and there are some very well-known, very efficient builders. Uh, Jason Costal out of Phoenix, Arizona, will give you a day almost, it'll be two years hence, but to a week, because he's got like a plan and he knows when he's gonna be putting the body together and he knows when he's actually gonna be sending it off for, for spraying. Anyway, so I'd waited seven, seven years, got this email from Dave, it's nearly ready, great. And I'm sitting there thinking, this is gonna be my 15th good guitar and I'm trying to think, why have I got so many guitars? I wonder whether 
saxophonists have 15 saxophones, or violinists or flautists or drummers. One assumes pianists don't, and that's a space issue, but most instruments are quite small. <laughs> so, so I think that, 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 that was in my head. And the other thing was, it's just been seven years. And the various reasons why the guitar is not ready are, are, are some of them are very funny. Some of them are almost pathetic. And it's not like Dave wasn't building other guitars because he was producing other guitars, but my guitar sort of sat there and it, it had lots of issues. Sometimes to do with the complexity of the build, sometimes because something went wrong, sometimes they were emotional issues. And I thought there's a book here. <laughs> and I was thinking of writing a short book um, and it had various titles. Uh, the first title was, was number 179, um, which was the build number for my guitar. I'd got a build number when I paid the deposit uh, seven years earlier. Um, so I'm thinking there's a story there and why have I got so many guitars? So I thought there's, maybe there's a story here which might help people who are thinking of buying a custom-made guitar from an individual luthier or maybe someone who's got, um, as we know, it's, it's laughingly called gas, you know, guitar acquisition syndrome. Um, it is actually a real syndrome. I mean, uh, over the years of writing this book, I've met lots of people who have really got it quite bad. Um, I haven't <laughs> got it that bad, but uh, there's a great YouTube video. Um, uh, Billy Connolly, the, the English stroke Scottish comedian does quite a lot of programs, mainly in the UK, which are road trips. And he's done Australia and America, but he goes and visits this guy and he's got a warehouse somewhere in the Midwest. And he walks in and this guy's got, he goes into one room and this guy's got probably 250 um, Epiphone Coronados, uh, sort of semi-acoustic guitars. They're still being made. These are not rare guitars. He's got them in every color, but he's also got 12 in blue. And you think, why would anyone need that many of these guitars? A guitar that's not rare. And we went and in this little film, and it is on YouTube, just do um, Billy Connolly, guitar collector, and you'll get it. Um, He's got a huge warehouse and room after room after room with guitars and banjos and whatever. He's obviously a wealthy guy. Um, so that's how I sort of got to thinking. So I, what the original book was going to be number 179, story of, a, of building a guitar. But as I started asking myself questions, why have I got so many guitars? Why, have I, why the guitar draws people to purchase many of them and own many of them? Um, was sort of running in my head. And so I started talking to people. I didn't have any friends, I had a couple of friends who played guitar, but no one was as interested as me. So I started going out and chatting to people and um, it was always the same conversation. I'd say, oh, how many guitars have you got? And they'd go a bit glassy eyed and they'd say, oh, I don't know really. And I'm thinking, yes, you do. Uh, <laughs> I always said maybe, I don't know, a dozen. All right, well, okay, fine. Um, and if their wife or partner or significant other was in the room, I think, okay, fine, that's a good answer. And then when I was alone with them, usually when they were showing me out, I said, how many guitars have you really got? He said, oh, 50. I said, where are they? He said, I've got a lockup. 
a, you know, a, a lock-up garage. I said, but how do you get to 50? And how come your, in this case, wife doesn't know? She said, well, I've got various techniques. And every <laughs> time I spent, so, so standard technique, uh, you're right, honey, I've got too many guitars. I'm going to take this one uh, to sell it. And I, I, he goes off with an empty guitar case. He goes and picks up the guitar that he's bought online. And he comes back. He said, oh, no, they weren't offering me the right price and takes it back. He's got the guitar in the home. And um, I thought no other instrument has this effect on people. So I started doing research and talking to more and more people. And I've got outside this, in my side office, I've probably got about 200 guitar books, you know, all the usual stuff, obviously, from the George Grooms to A History of Martin to the Chinnery Collection and whatever, a lot of, and I, I read an awful lot. And I thought, I know everything there is to know. And I started writing the book and a friend of mine said, no, you've, you've got to, you've got to go out there and talk to people and you've got to go to America and talk to people. I said, well, I'm not going to find out any more that isn't in all of these books. He said, you will. Um, and so I did this two month road trip. And after I sort of, as I was completing that, or as I was doing, it, I thought there's a much bigger book here. Um, and there's a fantastic story to be told because the, the, steel string flat top acoustic guitar is the instrument of our time our time it's the most influential musical instrument there's ever been it's changed the shape of not just music much bigger than that politics civil rights politics with a big p politics with a small p um hoover has a, a terrific phrase which i have not memorized where he said you know, this is an instrument that brings people together it, it creates life relationships it makes people think about different things it might end a war it's you know the, the music that comes out it but it's what the key thing was it was a musical instrument that democratized music making in a way that the fiddle and the banjo and the uke didn't it put an, a relatively easy to play, relatively, because if it was that easy to play, I'd be a much better guitarist after 40 years of playing than I am now. It's a devilishly difficult instrument to play well, as we all, as we all know, but it just changed the shape of, of, of music, but not just music, but politics and civil rights and life, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm just, and I decided I wanted to tell that story. Um, and that's what, so the, there were two aha moments. What the first one was, I'm going to write a book about having this guitar made. And then after a few months and doing more, the thing about doing research is only when you start doing research, do you know what you don't know? Yeah. I mean, I've got, you know, friends of mine um, who are not really into music think I know a lot about music. Oh, hey, John, we're, you know, can you put a playlist together? We're going to, you know, we want to do it. Or can you? And I said, the thing is, you think I know a lot about music. And I, I put it a lot kinder than this. Because you know very little about music. So in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. So you think I know a lot about music. I don't really know that much about music. 
compared to what there is to know. And it's a bit like the same with guitars. I thought I knew a lot about guitars um, until you start doing research and you realize how complicated and how interesting it is and how important the instrument is. And that's when I then started writing what became a 170,000 page book. Um, I would have made it shorter if I'd had a bit more time, as Winston Churchill once said in a letter. Sorry, this letter is so long. I didn't have time to write a short one. And in a way, um, I mean, I spent seven years writing the book uh, with a lot of help from some wonderful people along the way. But essentially, I sat in this room with a computer and a pile of books and references and wrote the book. Um, and um, it's, and as you know, it's, it's, it's three books. It's a, it's a history of the acoustic guitar and the influence it's made on music and life and civilization and the way we are today. It's the story of the making of one guitar that I commissioned. And it's woven within that is a story of a road trip. So I, you know, I went on, I was, I did lots of meetings and I went when I saw lots of people, but fundamentally in the heart of it, I uh, flew across to New York, rented a car and spent two months driving from a meeting and talking to people from New York to Pennsylvania, down through the Appalachians, Nashville, Memphis, down to uh, New Orleans, and then up to San Francisco and down the West Coast and ended up at the, at the Taylor factory on the border with Mexico, um, which sort of in a way gave me lots of different insights that genuinely you don't read in books. So. It's, it, it, it's, a, it, it's a really interesting journey. And, and let's, let's just say that right now, for all of you that are listening and watching that you'd love to have a copy of the book, the book is sold out. Um, but there is going to be a digital version available, correct? Yeah, an iPad, an iPad edition. Yeah, um, it's a fascinating story. Uh, and and the, first, the first couple of chapters, I kind of went, well, where are we going here? You know, why are we going here? Why is he taking me here? And then I kind of started to begin to look forward to the, to the, to the swerves and the curves yeah. and the, you know, and, and, and the, unexpected stuff that I found in there. Um, part of it was your relationship with George Gruen. <laughs> He's a pretty interesting guy. Yeah. Um, and George wrote the, George wrote the, um, the preface for the book. Yeah, correct? the forward. Yeah, yeah the, the forward. forward. Yeah, so. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, when I went on this trip, so, uh, Here's, here's something I'd recommend. Um, I decided I was going to go on this trip. Uh, the recommendation of a friend, a friend of mine had written a book about the American advertising industry in the 60s. Fascinating book. It was, it was, it was the real story of Mad Men. And, and that period in New York, mainly New York, when there was you know, so much happening in, in jazz, in music, in art, and and all of that influence on, on the American advertising scene, which was just, it America completely changed the shape of advertising. And love or hate advertising, it, it, was, it was just a brilliant time. And he, he was commissioned to write this book and 
the guy, the guy who commissioned him said, oh, you know, you can make phone calls and you can ring key people up. And, and he said, but most of the people you really want to talk to are dead. He said, I don't think they are. So he went to New York and he, he said it was interesting. There was a guy he particularly wanted to, to interview and he couldn't get hold of him. And he interviewed somebody else. And my chum said, is Thingy still around? He said, yeah, he is. Um, let me make a phone call. And he came back and he said, what are you doing in the next 10 minutes? He said, well, nothing. He said, come and meet him. His apartment's just around the corner. And he said he went and had a conversation. He said, so you've got to go out there because all of these interesting mm -hmm. guys have got gatekeepers. So when I left London, I had one meeting booked, scheduled. And it was a meeting uh, with the curator of the Blues Archive at the University of Mississippi. And I sort of pick, I almost like put a pin in the dial in the calendar and said, okay, I'll pick a time. And I, we had a conversation and we agreed it was going to be a Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock in October. Uh, I gave myself about 10 days to get to get to. And, but everybody else, I'd had an email exchange with Groon, uh, with Matt Umanoff, with the um, Stan Jay's family, Stan at, uh, at Mandolin Brothers, Stan had passed. Yeah. And I bought, I bought a number of guitars from Stan and I'd had a reasonably good relationship with him on the phone. But I never, I was never in New York with enough time. I used to travel to America quite a lot. I was never in New York with enough time to go across to Staten Island and meet him. So everything I ever bought was usually mail order, and he'd ship it to the hotel in Kansas where I was working, or wherever. And anyway, all these guys said, "Yeah, uh, I might be able to see you. I, I can give you half an hour. I'm very busy. I'm running a shop, or I've got this and whatever." And of course, they would. At the time, I thought, mm, but they always said, ring me when you get to town and we'll fix something. So I'd had an email exchange, with, as I say, with George. So I rang him when I got to Nashville, the day, first day I arrived there. And he said, yeah, come in tomorrow, 10.30, and I can give you half an hour. I think, fine, that's half an hour. So I got to get to the store at uh, 10 o'clock, want to be early in the store hang around i sort of introduced myself to someone who walks up to george and says the english guy's here and uh george takes me up to his office uh, after doing lots of other things he's very busy he's got to talk to there's a customer there's a guy who wants some advice on a guitar they're actually repairing and stuff like that. i'm going to george's office at 10 30 and at 11 o'clock i say goodbye to him 11 p.m so I spent the whole day with George Groom. And uh, so the first thing to say is, uh, I'm sure lots of people know a lot about George. So George is a uh, studied zoology and animal behavior. He's, he's got lots of hobbies, obviously guitars is one, but he's really into uh, insects, reptiles, and snakes. Um, and if you go into George's office, he's surrounded by aquariums, tanks. And in the tanks are big anacondas, cottonmouths, the most poisonous snake in North, snake in North America, um, iguanas. There's a few stuffed fish on the wall. There's, I think there's some spiders. Now, I, I hate three things in, in life. Snakes, reptiles, 
and insects. I actually <laughs> loathe them, like with a loathing. So I'm sitting in this armchair in George's office, and next to me there's a huge great tank with an anaconda in it. And of course the anaconda is looking at me going, and so I'm trying not to look at it. I'm asking George questions. Anyway, so during the course of the day, and in a way, George has done the thing that anyone else would do. He doesn't know me from a hole in the ground. So I could be a complete jerk or just a, uh, you know, a guitar tourist. Um, and he can get rid of me in half. And he says, anyway, it's been great talking to John. Uh, my next meeting's just arriving. And lo and behold, exactly at 11 o'clock, the phone buzzed. He picks up the phone. His secretary's in there. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, I'm going to I'm going to be a while and puts the phone down. And obviously that's his secretary saying, this is the call you wanted me to make at 11 o'clock. So um, <laughs> so I spend a couple of hours with George. So a uh, couple of hours with George uh, chatting away. He then has to go to a meeting where he's going to value his, his work. He's, they've just taken on consignment, a whole pile of guitars. He said, do you want to come to the valuation meeting? So I sit there with George and his two guys and they go through about 60 instruments, valuing them. And you learn how George values instruments, how it works wow. for, for consignment. Um, then he, he does have another meeting to go to. And he introduced him this guy. He said, take him back up to the top floor and he can, he can play anything he wants. So I go into the, so the higher you get in the building, the more expensive the guitars are. So in that top floor, there's a rack of about 11 0045s, not new ones, but vintage ones. So I spent about an hour playing, oh, $100,000. Oh, $170,000. Um, and then the guy says, oh, do you, what sort of music do you like? And I said, well, I'm a big fan of Gillian Welch and Dave Rawlings. He says, ah, do you want to play Dave Rawlings' second backup Epiphone Olympic? 1937. What are you going to say? So hands me that, play that, which is great. So we go through it. Then George, George says, do you want to get lunch? Yeah. Okay. He said, I'm going out to WSM, uh, which is uh, the radio station in Tennessee. It's where the Grand Ole Opry used to be broadcast from. He said, they're having their 90th uh, anniversary. And I've been invited. Do you want to come? Yeah. So we go. And I get to meet a lot of the guys from way back who were the engineers and were setting up the antenna and how they used to do the recording and stuff like that. George knows everybody in that world. We then go and have lunch, meet a few people at lunch, a couple of musicians, whatever. And then we spend the afternoon together doing various other things, looking at this, looking at that. I get to play more guitars. Uh, we eventually go out to dinner. Uh, no, he said, are you hungry? I said, and I said, well, and I'm hungry, but I've also got a ticket in my pocket for the concert that evening at the Ryman, which I bought the previous day. So I'm thinking, well, I'm obviously going to miss that. So I'll just let that burn a hole in my pocket. We go and have some, we walk around the corner from the store, go and have something to eat. And we come back and we get back to the store at uh, quarter to 10. And I, Good to see you, George. You've been so generous with your time. And as you probably know, you know George speaks, he's, a, he's, he's an absolute gentleman, but he's also a pedant. He's very short-tempered. He hates inaccuracy. He will argue everything. And we've had a sort of good knockabout time, but it's, it's been not an easy day 
I think you'll find, John, that you are wrong on that subject. When I was talking to Bob Dylan about that guitar, or, well, yes, I sold Eric Clapton three Stratocaster necks in 1968. No, I correct myself. 1969, it was the January. I remember it was snowing. And he also bought a, you know, that's the way, he's got an amazing memory. He's met everybody. And of course, everyone is, yes, Joni bought one of those guitars from me. She telephoned me and I was able to help. I've got a very bad George Green accent, but that's the way to. Anyway, so I'm saying goodbye. And he said, do you want to see some special guitars? I said, what do you mean by special? He said, my pension guitars. So we go back into the store, we go up, and behind his desk, he brings out the first guitar, and it's a, a tweed uh, case, um, uh, Fender. So this is, uh, I can't remember what the zero number in is, but we're talking about zero, zero, and one digit. It's a very, very, very low number blonde. He said, this was the first blonde Telecaster. So we played that for a bit. He then, he said, you mentioned you had a 0042. He said, so this is a 1932-0042 original. Never no neck reset, original T-bar frets. Um, and he tells me a story, which I can't repeat, as to who it belongs to, because uh, there is another one of these guitars, which is not as original as this one, which belongs to a very famous musician who believes they have this very special guitar. He never sold it to them. He said it was sold to this person by a colleague of mine, a business associate, and it is not the guitar they think they have. And then finally, he brings out this alligator leather case and he sort of, not he didn't sort of, he opens it and um, he says, uh, so immediately opens it, it's a D'Angelica. It's a 1959 D'Angelica um, XL. So the best guitar that, John DeCristo, John D'Angelico made. And it was um, made for Homer Haynes of Homer and Jethro. I'd never heard of Homer and Jethro. They never really made it over to, to the UK. And he bought the guitar from an archtop collector called Ranger Doug. And it was labeled because all these guitars have got prices on because every, every guitar dealer, even if they are their pensions, they everything's for sale and I look at the number and you could buy a really nice house for the price of this guitar so I play this fantastic guitar for half an hour absolutely I'm not a I don't play with a pick so of course it the sound really comes alive if you can play with a pick uh, I always play finger style with my skin and um, so we play that so that guitar a year and a half later is bought by uh, Dave Rawlings and the story was that and Dave knows George or George knows Dave really well they you know he lives in Nashville uh, with and Gillian and he said I was looking he's, 
he said, Dave always said that he was looking for a different sound from the Olympic, which has a very characteristic sound. And he said, I just thought this could be the guitar. And I took it in and obviously it was a lot of money, but Dave bought it. And that's the, uh, on uh, poor, I think it's the, it's the guitar that he played on uh, poor David's Almanac, uh, which I guess was 2017, I think that came out. Um, so I played that guitar for half an hour. So an amazing David George. I then, so I spend quite a lot of time writing the book, a couple of years go by, um, and I get to a sort of final version of it. And um, someone mentioned to me, who's done the fact checking, fact checking on the book? Um, and I sort of did the fact checking as I went along. Um, and, I, and I didn't just sort of take what was in a book for granted. I sort of referenced it two or three different ways if I was saying something that was important. And so I remember phoning up um, Jason Valindi at Fretboard Journal, who'd been very encouraging about the book and said, you know, keep in touch and et cetera, et cetera. And I said, I, I need to get someone to write a forward. Can you help me? And he said, well, I could, we could approach Dave Crosby. We know Dave really well, but uh, you know, he may not be the quickest way to get a forward written. And Jackson Brown's a, a good friend of the magazine, but he's really busy, he's on tour and stuff like that. I said, I was thinking of getting George Groon, asking George. And Jason sort of said, great idea, but you've met George. George is really tough. He's really pedantic. That ain't going to be an easy ride, getting George to write a forward, because he's going to want to know everything about the book. Anyway, so I ring George, and he says, yeah, I'll write a forward for you. Um, <laughs> but I need to read the book first, every word of it. And um, he'd just been bitten, I think, uh, not by a snake, but by he'd written an appraisal, of a, a, a sort of thing on the back of the book, a blurb for another book that had just come out. And he was very disappointed because he, he'd only read a chapter when he wrote it as a favor. And when he read the whole book, he didn't totally buy the book. He didn't believe the story of the book. So George said, yeah, but I've got to have to read the book. So we had an agreement. I'd send him two chapters of the book. He'd read them and then we'd have a phone call. And the system we developed was I'd send him two chapters couple of days ago by, he'd read it and he'd send me an email saying, I'm ready to talk to you. And he would, he gets up really early about four o'clock in the morning and he would ring 4.30, I would ring him 4.30 Nashville time, which was obviously later in the day for me. And he went through every line of that book and it was both brilliant and exhausting. Um, I reckon I spent about a hundred hours on the phone with Groon and he, he queried lots of stuff. Um, he introduced, if I, I, there's, there's quite a lot of banjo in the book because you can't tell the story of the American acoustic guitar without telling the story of the banjo. Um, and he said, oh, you need to talk to Jim Bolam. I'll introduce you to Jim Bolam. He's written, what he doesn't know, what, what he doesn't know about banjos isn't worth knowing. Um, but I remember there was, um, and this would be my final bit of the Groon thing, um, he, there's a, there's a bit in the book. When I got to Nashville, I went to the Ryman Auditorium and I had the tour. And if you pay an extra 10 bucks, 
you can do a karaoke recording and you go up into a little studio, glass window that overlooks the auditorium. And there's a really nice guy there, his name I've temporarily forgotten. And he'll put a track on and you can sing. And he records it and you, and you like, print out the CD and it says Ryman Auditorium Recording. So which I said, well, I've actually got my guitar with me. Do you think I could, rather than singing to a backing track, could I play, could I play something? And he said, what are you going to play? I said, well, I'm, I'm going to play Hesitation Blues. Uh, I'd like to play Hesitation Blues. Uh, not the uh, Hot Tuna version, but the Reverend Gary version of it. So he said, oh, let me hear it. So I play it. And I can play it quite well, um, even if I say so myself. And um, he, uh, he said, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. I said, any chance I could stand on the Ryman Auditorium stage? and record it. He said, oh, we don't do that. He said, but we could. So <laughs> he moves a few knobs, he goes down, he sets up a single microphone, as of course you would want. And there's a bunch of, of Japanese tourists milling around. So I get up on stage, he goes back to the control room and I play into one microphone Hesitation Blues, um, and so I t I've, and I've written about it in the book. It's, you know, it's a it's a pretty big moment for me. I mean, I'm a Brit. I know about the Ryman Auditorium. I've stood on the Ryman Auditorium stage, the same place where Johnny and Dolly and Dave Rawlings and Gillian, all my heroes, sang. And this guy from Britain with my 1955. Martin 018, my birth year guitar, um, uh, and I play it and record it. And that's in the book. And in the book I explain it, and I, and I stood on the exactly the same wood. So we get to that bit with George, whatever chapter it's in. And George said, I would carry on with my George impersonation. He said, I think you'll find that you were not sitting, standing on the actual timber. I said, well, George, I was. He said, well, no, they rebuilt the stage in 1982, I believe. <laughs> yes, the October of 1982, they rebuilt the stage. And he tells them the story that this, the stage had got weak. And of course, bands were now having, even country bands were having a lot more equipment. And the, uh, not the raft, what they called, the joists underneath the stage had got weak. And they had to reinforce it and rebuild it. And I'm nodding. I said, this is exactly true, George. You're absolutely right. But... When they dismantled the stage, they salvaged a number of timbers that were good, solid, not rotten, had no woodworm in. And when they rebuilt the stage, the front apron of the stage is the original timber from the 30s. So it's the first um, three feet and it, it, it spreads about 10 feet wide. And George gives me, well, he's not, I'm not in the same room. He's in Nashville, I'm in London. He says, hmm, okay, I'll have to check on that. <laughs> so we finish the call. <laughs> Two days later, I'm on my next call with George. He says, John, I've been to the Ryman Auditorium and I've met with Pat, blah, 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 the woman who is the archivist, essentially. And she tells me that you are indeed correct. And that's very interesting because in 
a lot of my time now, I find that there is very little that I do not know about musical instruments, artists, and whatever. And you have taught me something that I did not know. And thank you very much for that. So that was that. Was that. That's great. That's really great. So did you make it down to uh, uh, your meeting at the uh, Blues Museum? Yeah. OK, good. That was in uh, Ox that was in Oxford, University of Mississippi. You were in Oxford. Yeah, I've got okay. I've got another story. I, I have to. So this is great. I think this is great. So I've got the meeting ten, 10 o'clock in the morning in Oxford. I'm staying in a very nice hotel in Oxford. Um, I stayed in some pretty crap hotels, <laughs> and uh, I slept in the car a couple of times, uh, back of the car, because I just didn't. You know, distances are huge and. I got tired and I thought, I'm not going to make it. I'm just going to have to pull over somewhere. So I, I checked into a really nice hotel. And uh, in the morning, I've got my meeting at 10. It's going to take me 15 minutes to drive there. So at 8 o'clock, I'm in the coffee shop of this nice hotel. And I'm chatting to the two lovely ladies behind the counter about how I'd like my coffee. And the voice behind me says, well, you're a long way from home. And I turn around, it's a very nice guy. Michael, John, nice, nice to meet you. So have, he said, do you want to meet the richest man in Mississippi? I said, well, I look at my watch. I think, hmm, this isn't going to take two minutes, is it? And I said, yeah, I, I'm up for meeting the richest man in Mississippi. Um, so we go outside and sitting, sitting at the table uh, is this guy in his 50s. And Michael introduced me, John. This is Dickie Scruggs. Uh, he, and he's the richest man in Mississippi. But I tell you what's even more interesting. He's just spent seven years in the federal penitentiary. <laughs> and he was a very famous lawyer um, who was, well, he did do it, which is he conspired to bribe a judge. And it was all, it was set up. Uh, FBI probably were a little bit on the take, allegedly, I should say that. Um, and he, he spent seven years in prison. So we do that. I then go to the archive um, and I meet this guy and we've spent a couple of hours in the archive. And as I come out, my phone rings and it's the guy from the morning. And he said, what are you doing? Do you want to come for lunch? I said, yeah, that'd be great. I, he said, well, you drive past, uh, um, I've got Roanoke, which is the house that, um, I can't remember the famous author now from, from Oxford. Uh, he said, drive past that, and you drive about three miles past that, there's a big white house on the hill, and that's my house, drive up to that, and we'll have lunch. So drive up to the house. It's a big house. I mean, it's like twice the size of Graceland. And you obviously realise that there's a lot of money in pop music, but there's even more money in law. And yeah. I have a, a wonderful lunch and we chat and whatever. And he said, where are you off to now? He said, I'm off to, I said, well, I'm going to Clarksdale to see the crossroads, um, see whether the ghost of Robert Johnson is still there. And I'm staying in this hotel, um, famous old shack hotel in, in Clarksdale. He said, ah, he said, well, my, one of my friends is the mayor of Clarksdale. So uh, I'll give him a call. And when you get there, be sure to look him up. 
And um, so I drive to Clarksdale, check into the hotel. I'm standing at the check-in phone and I've been chatting up or chatting to the receptionist. And I said, well, it's my first time here. And, you know, where are the good places to go in town and where can I go and eat? And stuff like that and the phone rings and he says yes hello uh, said, oh right yeah he's standing right in front of me and she holds the phone and she says, it's the mayor for you <laughs> <laughs> thank you so he she hands the phone over he says hi michael's just phoned me and told you that you're going to be in town and whatever do you want to come to my office tomorrow and blah blah blah, blah. and i said oh yeah that'd be great so i put the phone down and uh, she said, I thought you knew nobody. I said, well, I didn't know anybody. I didn't even know I knew the mayor, but apparently I know the mayor. And so I spent the next two days in, in, uh, in Clarksdale. Uh, he owns a, uh, a blues club. The mayor owns a blues. He's, he's the mayor. He's a, an attorney. And, he's, um, and he owns the, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of the club now, um, with a famous African-American actor who's his best mate. So we spend, so I go, I go to a mayoral meeting. Uh, I attend a wedding where he's officiating. I go to the blues club in the evening and he's like the MC and he says, okay, and it's absolutely rammed. And he says, right, I wanna welcome up on stage a guy from England, John Stubbings, he's writing a book. And I want you all to buy this book when it comes out. I'm thinking <laughs> I'm writing a book, it's about five years before it comes out. So I go up on stage and he interviews me on stage with all these people shouting and stuff like that. Um, so it's, it, it was, it endorsed my friend's suggestion. Go and talk to people. Go on your own. Because if you go with your partner or wife or whatever, you'll always be saying, I'll, meet, I'll see you at lunch. I'll come back and we'll have lunch together. And you don't get to do the thing. So I went on my own for two months. And I got a bit homesick from time to time, but I don't think I ever had a dull day. And I always used to sit at the bar and you always meet someone interesting. So that was the, and, and so that, that two months I spent writing, um, every night I got back to my, wherever I was sleeping. And I used to write a blog of what I'd done that day. And that then became the, the travelogue sort of within the book. But having got the book and I sort of got it written and George had very kindly written a foreword and uh, fact-checked it, and I had contact with a few publishers, circulated the book, and they said, um, it's really interesting, but there's not enough pictures in it. There's not enough guitar pictures. I said, look, I've got a wall of books at home of guitar porn. The world has enough guitar picture books to last them for two lifetimes. If I want a book of every Fender Stratocaster model, every mate, I can get one. Ditto with Martin and Gretsch and whatever. This is a read, it's not meant to, it doesn't need photographs of guitars. The internet exists. You can look at a picture of every known guitar on the internet. You do not need a book to do that. And they all sort of said, mm. I said, also, I wanna make a book that's a bit special. I don't just want a book that's all the usual suspects. So, I'm, I sort of lost patience with the publishers, even though it'd be lovely to be going to go into a bookshop and see my book on the shelf. Um, and also, you don't make a lot. Of, you, it's, you don't get paid much as an author. 
you get paid, you know, every, every time, you know, you see a book in a shop, the author gets about 5% of the cover price because it's a, it's a, it's a big industry. Anyway, so I decided I'm going to make a book. It's aimed at guitar collectors. I'm going to make a book that's collectible. And so I spent, you know, quite a lot of time learning about typography. I got a guy called, guy called I didn't want photographs, but I wanted illustrations. And I got a guy called Drew Christie, who's a fabulous illustrator, does a lot of work for The Atlantic and New Yorker and, and Fretboard Journal. And I phoned up. I got in contact with Drew and he lives in um, uh, God, Whitby Island, uh, which is just off of Seattle um, in that northwest sort of passage. And I explained what I was after, probably about 15, 16 illustrations of, of musicians. And um, he said, yeah, I, I'd be interested. He said, next time you're down my way, pop in and we could have a chat about it. So I'm in London. It's like, Drew, you're 5,000 miles away and I don't pass by. I mean, Seattle, I might go through Seattle once in my life, but I don't think I'm gonna make it to Whitby Island. I mean, it's, I've gotta get, I've gotta to get to Seattle and then I gotta get a ferry and then I gotta rent a car and drive across and find you. He said, well, I'm a bit busy and I'd love to do it. So just let me know next time you're in town. So, <laughs> about, so I was chatting to my wife and I was, then I rang up Jason Valindia uh, again at Fretball Journal. I said, Drew sort of said he's interested in doing it, but he wants to sort of have a face-to-face. -face. Yeah, Drew's a bit like that. He's sort of like, he wants to sort of sniff you. He wants to see whether he wants to do it. He's so busy. And, and he said, oh, all right, okay. So about a month later, um, I combined it. I went to see Jason Costell, and then I got a flight to Seattle. I popped in to see um, Jason, and then I went across to Whitby Island. Um, and uh, it turns out that Drew Christie, and look up Drew Christie's illustrations. I mean, they're in the book. Um, and he, so Drew Christie, they're about $1,000 in illustration is what he charges his commercial rate. And so I get, eventually I get there to his little shack and he's got a few banjos on the wall and he's got some beautiful, he's just a beautiful illustrator. And I took him a um, couple of CDs, a Nick Drake CD and a, uh, Bert Yanch CD, sort of quite limited edition ones. He said, I love Bert Yanch. So we spent about three hours talking about English folk music. Um, and then he said, uh, yeah, I'd be interested in doing the illustrations. What do you, I said, well, uh, I'll tell you what, each chapter, I'd like each of the history chapters to have an illustration. And, uh, and but I don't want to have the usual suspects because, um, it, you know, everyone's sort of seen a picture of Dylan or, or rather, so I'm trying to find one now. Very, I should have, I should have prepped this. Um, I'm getting to the wrong, I'm getting to the, so the chapters alternate. So here we are. So what I said was, what we agreed is each chapter, so each of the history chapters deal with a decade. Um, 
and it talks about what happened, the, the influence of the acoustic, what was happening in acoustic guitar making during that decade and who were the people playing whatever. So I gave him for each chapter, he said, well, he said the thing is, sometimes I'll know whether I can draw a likeness. And he said, I normally know quite quickly whether or not I'll catch it. And sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. I said, okay, here's a deal. Let's agree four or five people who could be the illustration for the 1900, that decade. And you pick which one you're going to do. And he said, okay. Yeah. Um, so do you, want to, do you want me to tell you what I'm going to draw? I said, no. You just draw what you want to draw and send them to me. So, um, so this is 1900. So this is... Uh, Charlie Patton, fabulous illustration of, of Charlie Patton. Um, maybe his mother wouldn't recognize him, but he's, he's really called it. And so this one is Charlie Patton playing an early Stella six string. So every, every, every illustration is a, is a, a musician. Um, in fact, there's Bert Yanch. So Bert Yanch playing a 1960s Yamaha FT-150. You know, if you want to see exactly what a FT-150 from the 60s looks like, go on the internet. Um, so it's, it's just a flavor. And he's just the most wonderful illustrator. And, um, and he did me such a favor of, of doing these illustrations. Um, and we, we color it. So the, the, the first edition, the collector's edition of the book is, so that, and it was a, it was a lot of money. I mean, I, I've just about broken even. So I, to, to do the whole thing, I invested about $30,000 to produce 500 books. Um, and so they were priced at the, the collector's edition, which had colored illustrations, which were tipped in. So individually printed, cut, and then glued in. Um, and then there's a monochrome edition. I did 200 of those, so 500 in total. And um, so the, I think the, the, um, uh, the collector's edition was uh, 200 pounds. So with shipping, it's about $270. And they went pretty quickly. And then I then issued the 200 of the monochrome edition, where, as it says, the illustrations are monochrome. And they went, they all went at the end of, November last year um, and I've had lots of people now say I miss them I didn't and, and a few have appeared on eBay and a few in reverb um, but a lot of I've decided I'm going to produce 50 um, for iPad um, it doesn't the book doesn't work on a on a Kindle the screen's just too small and a lot about the book are the words, but also it's the format. I mean, the, the book's printed like it's letterpress. It uses three different typefaces. They're very complex typefaces. They don't reproduce very well. So I've spent the last couple of months uh, having the, the whole thing sort of re-engineered electronically so it shows on an iPad. And that's what I'm, I'm just going to release 50 of those. Uh, the first 20 have gone already, mainly to people who missed the paper edition and wanted a copy of it. Um, so um, that's what I'm sort of producing now. And, but, and, and that can be 
you can be reached at sales through orpheanpress.com. Hmm. Yeah, okay. I mean, you, you we'll, may have we'll, put the spelling of Orpharian Press. So an Orpharian, by the way, is a precursor to a, a guitar. It's an English steel string instrument, a little mandola shaped, and that's an Orpharian. Wow. Um, Queen Elizabeth I used to play one. Um, wow. She was quite handy at it, apparently. You can play it with a, you play it a little bit like a lute with a, um, a quill. Um, wonderful sounding instrument. So it's, yeah, it's the Orpharian Press that, that, that published it. Um, but uh, yeah. Wow, wonderful. That sounded a bit like an ad and it wasn't meant to be it, but you were, you were very keen to, <laughs> when we chatted before, to, to sort of talk about it. And, I'm, and you know, I'm immensely proud that we've managed to get an iPad edition out. It's sort of, iPad is the right size for it. It's about, it's about as small as I'd ever want it to be. And it's got the colored illustrations in. So it's, you know, it's, it's fairly special. And then, you know, obviously um, I'm not going to destroy the book after it, but I'm just going to produce 50 in the spirit of a limited edition. That, that, that's, um, I, I read on both Kindle and iPad and um, the iPad is, it, it, it seems to me that it would make perfect sense for what, what you've created here. John, I can't thank you enough for giving us this time and, and, just sharing. When I read it, it, it's such a journey. You know, it, it, it's such it's such a journey, and it's a journey for all the right reasons. I mean, you you allowed the serendipity of just going out to happen, which is usually for me when the magic happens. Mm, you absolutely. know, when I when I just go out and 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 I'm present in what's going on, and here's this person, and this person's going to lead to this person, and this person leads to this person. It's 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 really special when that happens. Mm. I mean, it really is. And and I, I'm I'm on a project right now where it's done the same thing for me, and I'm eight years in the project. You know, but um, <laughs> but it, it just those connections have really helped, and 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 made the magic. Um, and obviously, George isn't going to give you any time if, if he doesn't think what you're doing is valid, you know, so yeah. for him to give you days and literally weeks of time in, in all kinds of editing and the forwards, fantastic. But I hope you're really proud of it. I, we didn't really talk too much about Santa Cruz guitars. No, we? I want to show this. I'm going to show you this. So... This is my um, mm. Santa Cruz, Nick Lucas. Wow. So, wow. <laughs> I was gonna, so we talked a little earlier uh, offline about the guitars that get away. So one of the guitars that nearly got away was the guitar that I was having built. Um, but I, I was searching for a Nick Lucas and I saw one in uh, Buffalo Brothers in Encinitas and it was just too much money at the time. It was very, very, and I played it, and it was absolutely wonderful. Uh, it was one of the ones with a, 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 a tailpiece. Um, and I then started looking around for them. And there are, you know, the problem, as you know, with Gibson, old Gibsons, is uh, they're so variable. And you can't, um, you can't buy one unplayed because it... I'd buy one sort of if it was vouched for by someone I really trusted online, 
um, the guy at Folkways in, uh, in his name I can't remember now, oh. Mark. Uh, I'd buy one from him, but and they're a lot of money now. They're they're they're, they're out of my sort of price range, and so I I and as I'm sure all the Santa Cruz fans watching this know, the the H13 or the H um, Santa Cruz is is a a nod, an homage, what you know, a, a wide wide bodied, sorry, wide uh, deep bodied um, flat top. Um, and I rang um, Richard, and I can't remember when I had this built, and I said, would you make a, how would you feel about making a sort of Nick Lucas strong nod? And he said, yeah, we'd be up for that. So he said, I've got some fabulous maple. He said, I'll do a maple one. So it, it's, a, it's a maple, um, so it's got that beautiful, very small uh, sunburst, Beautifully done, maple, and then Adirondack top, again with a small burst, and then it's got the the fleur-de-lis and the Gibson style uh, pearl inlay. It's a it's a cracking, absolute. Mm. It's a wonderful guitar, absolutely. It's it's sort of my go-to default a guitar. And I saw Richard a few years ago, 2015 at the, at the Fretboard Summit, and I was describing the guitar. So it was made wet a few years before that. And I said, would you make one of these now? And he said, well, we sort of, you know, we're a boutique shop. So we sort of make mostly, he said, but I probably wouldn't feel comfortable making such a close reproduction. I'd, I'd certainly make one that helped you build one that sounded as close to a Nick Lucas, Ooh, a vintage yeah. Nick Lucas as I can, but I probably wouldn't feel comfortable doing all the decoration and dormants. And he's not, you know, he's not a precious man, but so I feel as though I've got such a, you know, a special instrument and it, and it is absolutely just stonking. Um, I hate that, you know, it's a real big sounding thing. It is quite, but it's such a fun, it's play, I play jazz on it. I play, you know, everything, you know, you can play, but you know, you know, it's a wonderful instrument and a testament to, the man, uh, Richard, the most honest man in the music and music musical instrument business, um, but also just to selecting the timbers for me. Um, but that's my that's my favourite go-to. Um, I love I love the H instruments anyhow, and I've got quite a few Santa Cruzes. I've got a lovely parlor. Oh, yes. Santa Cruz people are just a wonderful, wonderful combination. I'm entirely on board with you on that. Not enough maple Santa Cruzes are made, as far as I'm concerned. Okay, so I'm I'm trying to figure out because I have one that I've wanted Richard to make me one for for a while. I'll grab it. Um, Well, well, let me ask this while he's grabbing that, Uh, John. The book is amazing. How do you follow up on this? What what's what's what are you going to do with yourself next? It, this can't be the climax. No, I'm 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 towards the end. I'm on the fifth rewrite of, and that's not an admission of failure. I mean, this this um, the devil was in it. I, I sort of got to a a pretty comfortable version of it about two years before I published, and I use a 
an American editor and he'd read it a couple of times and he said, I, I think there's, there's something missing from this. And in fact, it was the, it was the blogs. It was my, the blogs I wrote every night when I was on my road trip. He said, they have a, a spontaneity. Uh, maybe it's because you, you wrote them very late at night, which I did. I used to write them from midnight through about two in the morning. And he said, they're funny and they, they, they're very honest and they, they, they're very fallible. They talk about a lot of the gags are at your own expense. He said, I think that's missing. So I, I then rewrote the whole book uh, after having finished writing it. Um, so I'm, 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 so it takes a while to write it. So I'm on the fifth rewrite of a, a book called um, The Guitar Detective. And it's a historical novel. And it's about a guy maybe a bit like me who goes in who goes into a old actually it's an old record shop in richmond richmond england was where the rolling stones first played live uh it's where eric the the shop and it really exists doesn't exist anymore existed back then it's where eric clapton used to listen to blues records um and so this mythical character maybe a bit like me goes into this record shop and there's a, it's the last day of the shop and there's a guitar on the wall. He sees it. He thinks it might be a vintage Martin. He buys it and he spends the rest of the book trying to authenticate the guitar so that he can flip it. But in fact, what happens is that he discovers that the guy, the guitar belonged to someone who's much more than a blues guitarist. Is a, who's a really, really interesting person who's a bit of a war hero. So it, it covers a period from 1900 to um, 1990. The book is set in 1990, which, by the way, it was before we all had cell phones, before the internet existed. So to find things out, you had to do what I did with a book. You have to get off your ass and backside. I'll let you cut that back in get off your backside and go on the road and go and talk to people. It's, a, it's set in the age of faxes and letters and making long distance telephone calls. And it's a bit of a love story. Um, and I'm, I'm, what I'm thinking of doing, amazingly, the current version, this is 170,000 words, the current version, and I just last week did the word count on it, is 169,000. So it's, it's virtually the same length as this. So probably what I'm going to do is produce a companion piece to this. And I'll do a, it probably won't, I won't do 500. Um, so that it looks the same, but it will just say the guitar detective as a companion piece. Um, very different because it's, it's not a historical book. It's not going to be as expensive as this. Um, I won't be using handmade paper. I won't, it won't have a decal hand cut edge. It won't use real Irish linen for the cover. It probably won't have lots of, I mean, the cover was drawn by Drew Christie. It probably will have something, I'm gonna get Drew to do the cover, but it, it, it's, it's, it's a novel. So that's what I'm doing. That's what I spend, I only spend probably four or five hours a day writing. And uh, I've been doing that for like the last, two years i've been start i've been writing the guitar detective the day after i published that 
So that's the next that's the next project. Well, wow. well, I'll have to keep my eyes open for that. I'll have to say it is on my bucket list to find one of those collector's editions of the devils in it, primarily because my father was a, a hand printer and a hand bookbinder for 60 or plus years of his life. And uh, there is an ingrained appreciation and acknowledgement of a finely made book, which I find very, very few people understand these days, but um, there's a thrill in your soul that's that's similar to picking up a very fine guitar when you pick Absolutely. up a really well done book. And that so was my motivation. And, and sadly, I only have one copy of the collector's edition left, my own copy. And when, they, when it first came out, I, I sold a guy in Switzerland, I sold him four copies. Wow. He has one that he keeps in his guitar room, one that he keeps in his living room, one he's got in, a, in its original case, an original shipping package that he has not opened, and another one in his music room, he has a Bible lectern, and he has the fourth copy on there. <laughs> I mean, for, when I got the order, I thought, I can't believe this. So he writes me a check for pretty close to a thousand pounds and he's bought fast are they gifts for people he said no they're all for me <laughs> <laughs> i'll give you his address he might be I selling one <laughs> john john thank you so much uh, uh, really um it's an it's, honor it's a real yeah. honor it really is. It, you, so fun to listen to you and, and to hear all this. It's really been a joy. I'm, I'm really looking forward to when we do the next one, when the next book comes out now. Yeah. yeah <laughs> absolutely. I'll let you have first dibs. Great. <laughs> you can do Great. the first interview. There's um, quite a few, if people are interested, there's quite a few interviews that I've done, not many, three or four, on uh, on YouTube. Not as good as this one, but I, I the North American guitar who are in Nashville now, they they were very very kind and supported the book all the way through and i did the launch event there uh, which was fantastic so there's a couple of interviews on youtube if you go to north american guitar the devil is in it blah 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 and i there's a a couple of others that i've that i've sort of done and on fretboard journal i did a reading so jason wanted so it'd be fun if you just read a couple of chapters from the book so for those of you who are, find it difficult to sleep at night you could maybe click into that and hear my voice drone on that'll that'll get that'll get you off to sleep It'll, that that will put you that, that that's in the in the fretboard journal podcasts yeah not not in the luthier to luthier podcast correct in the fretboard correct. journal podcast yeah yeah, I, yeah we're... and and can i just say it's been a great honor i mean i really appreciate you asking i obviously um i do love the sound of my own voice but i'm i I love this book. I mean, I spent five, six, seven years of my life writing it. Um, and when people say that, and, and you know this, Richard, from your project, have you spent seven years writing a book? Well, you don't spend, I haven't spent seven years writing every word, but you just want to make it better. And, and so, you know, I'll, some of those chapters, and maybe because I'm a crap writer, I don't think it is, but some of those chapters I must have rewritten 15, 16 times. They'll, hang on that could be a bit shorter that could be a bit briefer I, I want to put that thought in and stuff like that so they do it does take a long time it's a labor of love you know it's sort of my hourly rate is about a cent an hour I think on yeah. on that but it, it's it's still a thrill I love 
you know, I, I just love having done it, really. Um, it, you know, you, 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 you talk about the rewrite and all that stuff. And books, sometimes the musicians will talk to you about things that just come to them. You know, yeah. Tom Petty said, I wrote this song in five minutes, you know, and then there's a new Jackson Brown. You, you mentioned Jackson earlier, mm -hmm. and there's a new Jackson Brown record out that he said, I've been working on this song for a long time. You know, I've been working on this song for maybe 15 or 20 years. Yeah. And and it never was right. Yeah. And I that's I think that's special in what in what makes us who we are is that the person we have to satisfy the most is ourselves. Yeah. Well, that's what Neil Young says, doesn't he? I mean, he's exactly the same. He said, I'm, I, and it sounds like an insult. And I suppose Neil Young fans have to have pretty thick skins anyhow. Yeah. But he says, I'm, I only produce the albums for one person, me. And I am my toughest critic. And he's got, he's got so much stuff that has never been released or never turned into final song because it's just not good enough. Just, uh, just, just, yeah, just, uh, it, it, it's just not where he wants to be with it. Yeah, no, yeah. It, it's, and it's, it, it's certainly understandable. Um, woodworkers, uh, filmmakers, whatever, you know, they yeah. just, you, you, you look at something and you look at, and you look at it and is it right or is it not right? You know, and, and you're the one that has to say, you're the one that's got to get up with it. You know, yeah. you're the one that sits there and looks at it on your screen you're the one that talks to people about it, you know, and hopefully you want to be right. And I really commend you for the, 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 I didn't expect to enjoy it as much as I did. And I really found myself all of a sudden, I found myself going, I'm good. I got three hours. I'm going to read, you know, I want to, I, I want to, I want to really take time and, and really get into this. That's so, kind of you. Thank you. No, it's, I'm glad it, you enjoyed it. It's wonderful. It, it is truly wonderful. So I guess it sounds like now, if anybody has been needing an excuse to go buy one of the new iPads. Yeah. <laughs> get, get out there. Get, get yeah. out there. It, it, it does. I can't just say it does work on Kindle and it'll work on the other tablets. Um, but it just it, 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 it was optimized for for iPad. I think, it is, you know, the and uh, someone asked me, one of the guys who bought it said, is it? Does it is it as crisp? And I said, absolutely. I've you know all the work we did with the typography, and God, did we have to work hard with the typography to get it wor working? Is it was optimized for iPad? You can read. I've read it on a Kindle. It, it's it's fine. It's just it's not just a bunch of words. It's you know it looks good. It's, you know it looks good. It feels good. The illustrations are right, and it'll probably work on a. You could download it on onto a a full size desktop. But yeah, it was designed for an iPad. So, but yeah. Perfect. Other tablets are available. Well, it's almost six o'clock. God, time for time for my bath. Yeah, time for my time for time for time for a nap. Bath and a drink. Yeah, I was, I was gonna say time for the pub, but um, <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for for sharing, John, and and being here. And man, we're just happier than a pig and a pig in a a poke to to, yeah. to to have to have you here happy as larry happy as larry yeah and uh go enjoy the rest of the day john thanks so much we'll we'll Thank get you. you we'll get you when when the guitar detective comes out okay we'd yeah. love to well, bless you both thank you for your time yeah thank you john all right and okay. thanks for listening yeah
be well and go play your guitar. <laughs> Thank you guys very much. Here we go. We hope you enjoyed this installment of the Santa Cruz Coffee Break. For more music-related fun, please join the Santa Cruz Guitar Players Forum at scgcpf or santacruzguitarplayers.com. If you have any questions or possible podcast topics, please contact us. If you have a product or service that you feel would be of value to our listeners, please consider adding your support and keeping the coffee pot on. Contact us for more information. We ask that you hit the like, follow, bell, or bookmark buttons so we can keep you informed of upcoming podcast episodes. We hope you enjoyed Santa Cruz Coffee Break. Now it's time to go play your guitar. <laughs>